Well, welcome. Um, I was a little, a little anxious to see such a good crowd here on Sunday nights. There's usually only one reason a crowd shows up, and that's a special called business meeting to fire the preacher. Uh, I'm, a, I'm hoping that's not what's happening. No, welcome back. I'm, I'm glad to see so many of you that went on that, uh, that trip. You remember the one you didn't invite me on? I am just, I pray y'all had the best time ever. Like genuinely, I hope it was the best ever. So glad you're home, safe and not miserable. Yeah. Are you raising the roof? That's fantastic. Welcome back. We are, um, we are genuinely glad to have you back. Um, I know y'all were here this morning. I didn't get a chance to give you any grief, uh, but that's okay. That's what tonight's for. Um, we are in First Timothy. Uh, last week, the assignment was First Timothy chapter 6, verses uh, 2, or really 3 through 10. Um, in preparation for that particular study, it, it seemed like the best way of handling that text was to actually divide it out, verses 3, 4, and 5, and separate those from verses 6 through 10. And there was a linking point that we'll talk about again tonight. There was a link between the two. Um, it really is two separate themes, but there is a link, a common, a common uh, a bonding there that brings them together. And so we'll deal with those. Um, we'll deal with that, and then we'll jump into the text. But let's begin by reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 2b. So the last part of verse 2, all the way through verse 10. Are you ready? Let's go. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jumping into the study of this particular text, we must remember that the context is both key and king. Context of the passage is key to understanding the passage, and the context of the passage is king in our interpretation of it. In other words, what the author originally meant in the original setting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is more important than what you think the text means in this contemporary setting. It's not that you're without value. We know that you have value. It's just that God intended the text to teach what the text was intended to be taught through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we don't have a right to change that. Therefore, we should submit ourselves to the authority of God's inspired, infallible word and receive it within the context by which it was given. So what is the context? The context is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. The context is this letter. All six chapters is a single letter that Paul wrote to Timothy 
for the church. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote it to Timothy, and he wrote it to Timothy for the benefit of, of the local church. The church was in Ephesus, and so Paul is handing the reins, if you would, to the church in Ephesus, to Timothy. Timothy, most likely, we would assume, is in his early to mid-30s, um, and he is taking over the largest the largest Christian church in the ancient Near East. This is according to our understanding of churches at that period of time. Now, when we say it's the largest church, we understood that churches then were often regional assemblies that met in a multiplicity of places. There were multiple house churches or multiple local congregations that were governed, taught, administered by a local group of head pastors, if you will, Timothy being the headest of the head pastors. And Paul is writing to Timothy to teach him how to pastor these people, what to look for, what to do, what is demanded of him in his duties and responsibility to the congregation, as well as giving him some insights to what he's going to encounter when he gets to the church. And we know that Paul and Timothy had a very close relationship. Paul had essentially adopted Timothy as his spiritual son, and Timothy had allowed Paul to adopt him as a spiritual father. And Timothy went on all of these missionary journeys with Paul, learning, watching, absorbing, growing, participating in the missional activity of Paul as he's planning churches ever since uh, Paul recruited Timothy and took him with him. And so Timothy knows much of what Paul is saying, but there's something about sending it in a pastoral epistle that makes it more formal and direct. And in this particular passage in Acts chapter 6, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and then 6 through 10, what Paul is doing is he is first giving them, and this is what we talked about last week, he's giving him once again another precondition of the false teachers that are prevalent within the local church. And the problem that he identifies specifically in those verses is that false teachers, they were using academic society, they were using arguments, they were using uh, courses of debate, if you would, to keep the people stimulated and stirred, and they were uh, creating dissensions, divisions, they were stirring people with envy and other discords within the body which allowed the people to stay enticed by whatever these false teachers were teaching. But ultimately, the root of their problem is they thought godliness was a means of gain. And that is the connection between verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and verses 6 through 10. This is an idea of what is godliness and does godliness lead to gain? In the instance of the false teachers, they thought they had the preconduct preconditioned mindset that if they lived godly lives, God would reward their godly living with financial gain or material prosperity. And we have to be careful that we don't assume the same thing as true today that they assumed was true back then. Make no mistake about it. The devil is not that creative. He uses the same tricks over and over and over. And there are so many, particularly, this is a susceptibility that is prevalent within our evangelical conservative churches to think that our goodiness will result in God's favor being on our life. Can I tell you what that is? That's work-based religion. And that is to say that Jesus Christ saves me as long as it is in addition to my good works. If you have to add anything to Jesus Christ to earn your salvation, then Jesus Christ hasn't done anything for you. 
It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone or it's nothing. And he's arguing, bringing forth that false teachers were ultimately, maybe not teaching this, but they were thinking among themselves that if we can live godly lives, then it will lead to a life of gain, which is the root of work-based religions. And it is a cancelization of grace. And so he makes this argument in verse 6. He comes back with them and he says, uh, he says they are imagining that, verse 5, he's imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but, but let me change the subject and let me bring some truth to you, is what I imagine Paul saying. And I imagine Paul to be a rather intense personality. <laughs> I, I imagine him to be in your faith, in your face about your faith. And, and what leads me to that? Well, I mean, this is a guy that, that never stayed anywhere for more than a matter of a period of time before a fight broke out. I think that he was zealous for the faith, but I also think that he was very bold for the faith. And there were people that liked to keep the peace that weren't willing to hear the truth. So Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, I'm about to preach at you, Timothy, so that you can preach to the people. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, godliness is not the pathway to receive great gain, but godliness is the destination that will teach us what contentment is so that we don't have to live in subjection to wanting more. And if we can just embrace a life of godliness, then we won't have to worry about wanting more and more and more because we'll discover that in God, we have everything that we need. Uh, I love what Newt Larson wrote. He wrote this about this uh, opening verse in six. He says, for Paul, godliness was the entire scope of the faith. Correct doctrine combined with new life. Truth measured by right living. Let me say that again. For Paul, godliness was the entire scope of faith. Correct doctrine combined with new life. Truth measured by right living. So here he gives us godliness. Godliness is the reverent awareness of God's sovereignty over every aspect of life and the attendant determination to determine in all one's conduct. In other words, godliness is recognizing God's sovereignty over all of life and allowing our outliving of life to reflect that we believe that truth. It is to reflect that we believe God is who he is and what he is. I've, I've been doing a study through Psalm chapter 139 where we understand the depth of who God is. The deeper we grow in our knowledge of who God is, the more widely we should live that out. Godliness is a life that is pleasing to God. He says, not only is it godliness, but godliness with contentment. Contentment is acceptance or satisfaction with one's situation. It is the accepting the things as they are and living in a setting where we love God's providence for us. Satisfaction is having a contentment and accepting things as they are and loving that God has provided for us in the way that he has provided for us. 
Now, this idea of contentment, we're not going to delve in it too deeply because we still have a number of other verses to look through. But contentment is uniquely Pauline. In other words, Paul's the only guy in the New Testament that uses the word contentment, whether as an adjective or a noun. He uses it here and he uses it two other times, the most popular of which is in Philippians, where he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we know that that passage isn't just talking about scoring a football goal, but it's talking more specifically about living in contentment. I can, I know what it's like, Paul says. I know what it's like to live with much and I know what it's like to live with little. And I know that no matter whether I have much or have little, I am going to live for Jesus Christ. What a masterful theme of the Christian faith that's present for us through Paul's dealing with the statement of contentment in the book of Philippians. And so again, here is Paul's statement in verse six. He says, for godliness with contentment is great gain. In verse 7, we move forward and he says, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take out, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And so he brings some logic behind it. You get to take out what you brought in. That seems fair. You get to take out what you brought in. The thrust of what Paul is saying is that material possessions are equally irrelevant at the entrance of life as they are at the exit of life. They have the same value when you come into the world as they have when you go out of the world. Some of you have had the unfortunate privilege to sit with people on their deathbed. I can remember the first time I sat with a man as he took his last breath. It was one of those unique privileges of being a pastor. As a pastor, there are things that you get to do that you don't want to do, but you thank the Lord that you get to do them. And one of those things is being invited into a family's most intimate moments, such as on the deathbed. And this man, man, he was a big old dude. He was, uh, he was in his bed in the last moments. His wife was there. One of his children was there. It was middle of the night, and they invited me to come back to the back room, and he's mumbling sort of in and out, and he's taking those labored breaths as it was drawing to the very end. And this is a man who had provided modestly for his family, not extravagantly, but he had provided modestly for his family. He had done his, he had done his part in life as a citizen of this great country. He had done his part in his family as being a present, faithful husband, he had contributed to his local church and attend his local church. And there he laid on his deathbed taking his last breath. And none of the things that we toil after in wealth or riches were even close to being on his mind. And I can tell you that I've been in other deathbed scenarios and situations. And yet have I heard anyone wonder if they could have gained or possessed more. Because you're going to go out with exactly what you brought in. You're going to go out with exactly what you brought in. There was a preacher, and this is a little bit more humorous than that last story. But there was a preacher who was called upon to bury the richest lady in town. She passed away. She was the richest lady in town. And this preacher decided he was going to take his son along with him to the funeral. And so he did the funeral. He, after the funeral, they, they, they walked out and they went to the, to, to the cemetery next door to the church and they buried her. And on the way home, the little boy said, Dad, how much did she leave behind? And he looked at him and he said, Everything. You wonder how much you're going to leave behind? Everything. 
This is the logic that Paul brings forth in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. Godliness with contentment, it is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, as a point of technical consideration, in verse 8, when he says clothing, the word there is covering. It means both clothes and shelter. All right, our English translation, sometimes our English language struggles. I know we're all great Americans and we think that we have the best ever in everything that we ever have. But our English translation, it struggles a little bit bringing across the, the ancient Greek into the contemporary English. So what he's saying is if you have food and clothing and shelter, if you have food and clothing and shelter, with these we will be content. In other words, if you have the basic necessities of life, you should be satisfied. You should be satisfied. Now, we need to go ahead and deal with every Bible commentary that I wrote, uh, read on this particular passage. They all deal with the same statement. And it's one that we need to deal with. And I think that it's, I think it's, uh, applicable in this setting, though we, we have a rather affluent congregation, and that is that just because Paul says we should be content with the basic necessities, he's not making an argument that we should be content with destitute. So if someone is facing destitution, if they have no food, if they have no clothing, if they have no shelter, Paul is not arguing that they be content in that particular situation. Now, to the best of my knowledge, in this particular situation, I don't know if there's anyone in here that is lacking food or if there's anyone in here that's lacking clothes, thankfully, in this particular moment. And I don't know that there's anyone in this particular setting that is lacking shelter. If you are, we need to know about it so that we can step in and do our part to make sure that you're no longer lacking those things. But Paul is not talking about being content with the lack of basic necessities. What he's saying, he's bringing back into our understanding is that we need to be content when we have the basic things taken care of. And if we don't have contentment or satisfaction in the basic necessities, we either don't appreciate what God has already provided for us, or we've fallen into the trap of thinking we need more than what God has already provided for us. Either way, we're taking for granted that we have a good God who knows what we have, and we need to stop thinking we know better than Him. Which leads us naturally into the next verse. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. Now the condemnation does not fall onto those who are rich, but onto those who desire to be rich. Now note this, it does not fall onto those who are rich. Statistically, we are all rich. Statistically, we are all rich. I mean, we are well-off people. Some of y'all are more well-off than others, but we are all in really, really good positions. You know what I did this afternoon that reminded me of this? I ate leftovers. Does somebody say I do that all the time? Oh, y'all do that too. Well, I just assumed y'all's butler made you fresh food every time you ate. You know what a blessing it is to have so much food that we can eat it more than once? 
I mean, that's amazing. And some of y'all have been into some places that are so impoverished that people can't have one meal, much less two meals, with the same food left over. The scripture here tells us that there's not a condemnation for those who are rich. And let me just say, in, in a true sense of humility, we should express gratitude every single day for what God has given us. I mean, we really, we should. It, it, is, it blows my mind. Even, even at this stage of my life, like some, every day I pinch myself and say, God, is this even real? Like, is this even real? God, what? I, I'm scared to death to think what I could have possibly done to earn this because I know how much there is in my life that would cause me to be disqualified from ever living the life God's given me. And it's true about you too. The condemnation and the three clear steps of decline are discernible for those not who are rich, but those who desire to be rich. Again, we're not permitting or we giving way for people to remain in destitution without their basic necessities, but for those who are unable to find contentment because they're constantly pursuing wealth, here's the, here are the three discernible steps. First is the lure. It says they fall into temptation, into a snare. First, they have a lure. They're lured in by the thought of having more. And then they have a lust. So first is the temptation, and then they move into the lust, which is a snare, which is being enticed beyond just knowing that it's out there, but wanting more and more and more and more of it. And then finally, they fall into the, the, the complete bottom of decline where they have total moral ruin where they aren't just simply wanting more or knowing that there's more out there, but they've committed themselves to their senseless and harmful desires and they've plunged themselves entirely into ruin until they are ultimately living in destruction. And the destruction here could characterize someone who has absolutely hit rock bottom or it could categorize someone who hasn't hit rock bottom yet, but they're missing the present blessing of reality because they're caught up in the endless cycle of wanting more, and they're missing the blessing of present. And I'm afraid we have far too many people whose lives haven't completely unraveled and they think they're safe, all the while they're actually living in destruction because they're missing these moments, only to look back and realize my life was destroyed far before it looked like it was destroyed. And they missed everything from a point in the past until their present recognition and so Paul, again, he's, he's bringing forth this idea that uh, this argument that, that godliness with contentment is great gain and he's issuing almost a warning, a warning that you can't take anything out of the world that you didn't bring into the world, but it's going to be exactly the same. And, and this warning that we should be content with our basic necessities, to, uh, t content and having an attitude of gratitude and then he's warning that if there's anyone who desires to be rich, they're going to fall into temptation. It's not a, they might fall into temptation. They're going to fall into temptation, which is a snare, and it's going to plunge them headlong, vividly, into ruin and to destruction. And then he offers this maxim, this maxim that we've heard so many times before in verse 10. Are you ready for it? He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
In other words, if we have a love of money, it will be a root for all kinds of evil. Now note, he doesn't say it's the root, the sole cause of all kinds of evil, but it is a root, which meaning it is the sole cause for many types of evil. There are evils that exist outside of the love of money, but many evils that are within this created fallen world are within the realm of people loving money, and they are doing things, acting on the love of money, which is causing a loss of godliness and righteousness. John Stott, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, or on that particular verse, he writes this. He says, What then are the evils of which the love of money is a major root or cause? A long list could be given. Everest leads to selfishness, cheating, fraud, perjury, and robbery, to envy, quarreling, and hatred, to violence, and even murder. Greed lies behind marriages of convenience, perversions of justice, drug pushing, pornography sales, blackmail, the exploitation of the weak, the neglect of the good, of good causes, and the betrayal of friends. But Paul concentrates on only two evils which spring from covetousness. First, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. It is not possible to pursue truth and money, God and mammon, simultaneously. People either renounce their desire for riches in their commitment to faith, or they make money their God and depart from the faith. So what he's saying is he's saying, here are some of the causes... Here's some of the causes of the love of money. And then he points out the two causes that Paul brings to the surface. The first is, looking again at verse 10. The first is, through this craving, they have wandered away from the faith. That's one of the evils. Wandering away from the faith is one of the evils that is the result of the love of money. Why? Because you can't love God and money simultaneously. You can't worship two gods simultaneously. You can worship two idols simultaneously, but not the one true living God and a false idol. Those are incompatible. They don't work together. They don't go together. They don't compromise. God cannot allow the worship of idols, including money, to live simultaneously alongside with the worship of him. He is far too worthy, far too jealous, far too righteous for that. Secondly, Paul talks about the evil of being pierced with many griefs or having spiked themselves on many a painful thorn. With these griefs or thorns, are Paul, uh, Paul does not elaborate, but they, can, but they could include worry and remorse, the pangs of a disregarded conscience, the discovery that materialism can never satisfy the human spirit. And so in other words, what he's saying is not only will they abandon faith or wander away from the faith, but these will be people who are pierced in a present tense, constantly piercing themselves with the pangs of knowing, discovering, or living in the insatiable position of trying to feed materialism. But materialism can never be satisfied. You will always want more. You'll always seek more. You'll always pursue more. So Paul's like, hey, there's some false teachers and they think that godliness is going to be a means to gain. But I want to tell you, I want to remind you, Timothy, that godliness is not a means to gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And here are some reasons why. 
And he walks through these verses explaining to us exactly what he means. I think that we have for, uh, we have for a point of closing, we have two extremes. One that is explicitly stated in this passage and one that's implied. We have two great extremes and one ultimate solution. And I want to share those with you. This is in part reviewing the main thrust of these verses, all the while bringing to the surface an implied statement that I believe is not a stretch. The extremes is this. On the one hand, we have the thought that godliness is a means of gain, that we can live a godly life as a pathway to financial or material reward or advancement. And this is a terrible misunderstanding of what God's grace and love is. It's a terrible abuse, a terrible abuse and a gross mishandling of what Jesus Christ did on the cross to think that Jesus could shed his blood, the one true living God's son, Fully God, fully man could shed his blood on the cross, but that wouldn't be enough to get us what we need. It is to look at the crucified Christ who says, stick your hands in my wounds and fill where I've been scarred for you and to slap him in the face and say, well, that's almost enough. But every time we think that we can live a godly life to earn God's favor is to do that very thing. It is to think that God rewards us not based on his grace through Jesus Christ, but based on our goodness earned or acquired in this world. And that's one terrible extreme that purports some position of works-based religion. But on the other hand, on the other hand, we have another extreme. The other end of the extreme that I think is implied is people that say, I believe that God has been gracious and good to me without any basis of my merit. Therefore, I'm going to live however I want to live. I'm going to use grace as a license to sin freely. Those are the two extremes. On one end, I'm going to think that I can earn God's favor. On the other end, I'm going to think there's nothing I can do to lose God's favor. Therefore, I'm going to live however I want to live. Again, the problem with the merit-based is that it, it puts a slap in the face of Jesus Christ for thinking that his sacrifice was sufficient to cover your sins. And on the other hand, it puts a slap in the face of Jesus Christ to think that the call and the demand to follow Jesus Christ is simply based on words and profession, but not lifestyle. Because if you say that you're a Christian, but then you use grace as a lifestyle, as a license to live a sinful lifestyle, then you're saying that some of what Jesus Christ is true, but the demands he puts on claims on your life isn't true. Therefore, rejecting again, not just what Jesus did, but now rejecting what Jesus said. Because Jesus always invited people to do what? To follow him. But if you say you're following Jesus, but then you're living a lifestyle of sin, either you're lying about following Jesus or you're implying that your lifestyle is actually a reflection of Jesus' lifestyle. And I would be very careful before you start saying Jesus lived the way you live. And so there's two extremes, very, very stark differences, but two very real extremes that are played out every single day in our contemporary society. And the only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that saves us from either of those extremes. My friends, we both live in both extremes at different points in our life. 
It is the gospel that saves us from those lifestyle extremes. And it is the gospel that sustains us in a posture of repentance so that we don't drift back to the right or to the left on that spectrum. It's the gospel that sets us free from these two extremes. It's the gospel that reminds us that God has provided everything that we need in Jesus Christ. And we don't have to yield our spirits, our souls, or sacrifice our family in the pursuit of having more. But we can be satisfied that God is good and he knows what we need and he's taking care of it. And it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can understand that Christ died for all of our sins so that we don't have to continue living in the muck of a sinful, dark lifestyle. We don't have to be controlled anymore by the slavery of sin or addiction or habit or attitude, but we've been delivered from that and we don't have to use grace as an excuse or a license to live in sin, but we can use grace as a pathway to live in righteousness. And so grace of God through Jesus Christ on the cross, it saves us from either extreme and then it sustains us so that we can maintain a balanced perspective of looking at the Father, expressing gratitude and an attitude of gratitude, all the while expressing a humility that recognizes there's nothing that I did to get into this position of holiness, but by the grace of God, I'm staying here. Now, some of that I believe Paul implies here, but I don't think that it would be a stretch that would, he would disapprove of Timothy teaching. And so it's been taught here tonight. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to move into a time of invitation. I'm going to invite our worship team to come into their place. And here's how we should respond. And the Lord has just made it so vividly clear to me that these are two extremes that are still really, I mean, it's a battle that's still ongoing. And it seems like just in the past week, I've noticed in myself instances where, like, I just had this idea that somehow my godliness or goodness was going to earn some special favor from God. Now, again, we should still practice godliness, but we shouldn't practice it as a means to get something from God. We should practice it as a reflection of what we know God has given us. And at the same time, I thought, when I faced some temptations this past week, like, I've got the grace of God. Why am I even struggling with this? I might as well give in. I mean, how fast can I go from one extreme to the other? As fast as you do. And so I want to lead us into an invitation. If you've caught yourself living in one of these extremes and you've never trusted Jesus Christ to save you from it, I want to invite you tonight to give your life to Jesus. It's a Sunday night, but lost people show up on Sunday night too. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior during this invitation, I want to invite you to come forward and take me by the hand or take one of these ministers by the hand and let us tell you about the glorious good news of a man named Jesus. And if you have received Jesus Christ, but you don't find yourself trusting in the gospel to sustain you in a position of godliness with contentment, I want to lead you tonight to repent of whatever attitude or lifestyle is leading you differently. 
So wherever you are, you are invited to do business with the Lord tonight. Would you stand where you are? I want to lead us in a word of prayer, and then the invitation is going to be open. Our ministers will be at the front. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us tonight. As you taught us, Lord, you taught us through Paul's letter again to Timothy and how good it was to study it and to learn, how refreshing it is to know, Lord, that you still care enough about us to teach us these truths over and over. And you teach them to us, Lord, not to beat us down or to push us out, but you teach them to us to discipline us and to draw us back in, to pull us into the place of salvation and to sustenance. And so for the man or woman, for the teenager or child that needs to make a decision tonight, whether it be a decision for Jesus the first time, a decision of faith, or Lord, if they need to make the decision to repent, However you're moving, I pray, God, that they would respond in obedience. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.